Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of the Faculty at the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to highlight the work of my colleagues and our alumni in the fields of public policy, planning, and health, and how they are making the world, the country, and New Jersey a better place. Today, we're speaking with my good friend and colleague from the Public Policy Program, Professor Jocelyn Crowley. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, you've studied a wide range of issues um, related to gender, including child support, uh, gray divorce, father's rights, and now sexual harassment. Um, how do you choose your, your research areas? So I get this question a lot. And what I always go back to is my childhood and the experiences that I went through as a child um, growing up in a single parent family. Um, it, this was way back in the day in the 1970s. And um, at that point in time, when my parents uh, split up, there simply was not a good system of child support in place. Um, we had to look at uh, the, the resources of our relatives to help us financially um, when my father did not support us, as well as look at um, governmental programs to see if they could help us as well. And so this fed my passion um, in terms of looking at issues that affect primarily families, single parent families, and with a focus on women as well. So throughout my career, as you know, I've, I've looked at child support, child custody. I spent some time looking at how women who are working for pay are able to balance their work lives as well as their child care responsibilities, which is which was very, very difficult for my mother at the time. Um, and then I, I spent a couple of years looking at divorce after the age of 50 and the ramifications of divorce for men versus women. And, and that was a really, really interesting project. And most recently, I have spent some time looking at the issue of sexual harassment and what we can do to improve the lives of mostly women in, in the workforce today and protect them from that type of abuse. Well, I would love to do a podcast on each and every one of those <laughs> subjects, um, but we'll, we'll stick with your current work right now, and particularly because um, it couldn't really be more timely or relevant. Um, certainly over the past few years, we've had a renewing of attention. I mean, I remember sort of the attention after the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings in the early 90s, um, and then uh, the focus uh, changed and, and, and it moved away. But certainly Certainly with the, uh, with the growth of the Me Too movement um, and other factors, um, how, is, uh, how has attention been refocused on this issue and what are the ramifications of that? So I really think that uh, this story took off and exploded as a result of the allegations against uh, Harvey Weinstein um, in 2017. So 
Um, for a period of time, there were several news stories that were coming out um, on a daily, on a weekly basis, um, making new allegations um, against Harvey Weinstein and how he treated um, mostly um, female um, actors um, and who were attempting to get roles in his movies or attempting to move up in terms of that particular profession. And I think that that particular moment in American entertainment life where people are familiar with the stars, they're familiar with the actors, brought a lot of attention to it. I would also say that um, the... Uh, who I consider someone I consider a real hero, um, Gretchen, Gretchen Carlson at Fox News um, at the time came out, started to come out and, and say, listen, um, this is the culture of what's happening in a major news organization. Um, and she had the guts to tape record what was happening with respect to Roger Ailes and his behavior towards his female employees and really started to get the ball rolling there. Um, and so we had sort of this entertainment world that was being turned on its head. Um, we had this news organization world that was being turned on its head. And what I really saw was that previously on uh, previously uh, behavior where everybody just kind of look, looked the other way. Now, all of a sudden, we all started to say, no, this is a serious issue. This is an issue that's affecting primarily women. Um, and we're looking at it play out in these really spectacular forms where we know all of the players, but it's happening so much at the grassroots level as well. People employed in everyday jobs, um, mostly women, again, employed in everyday jobs with, with not with nowhere near as much power, right, as, as folks in Hollywood and folks in the media. Um, and feminists largely took this strong stance and said, we've got to start to hold people accountable, not only in these, these, um, these worlds of entertainment and news, but also for women working in everyday jobs, white collar jobs, blue collar jobs across the country. And so I really saw this movement take off in around 2017. And that got me interested in studying the experiences of a variety of women who have experienced sexual harassment on the job. Um now we're in this weird moment right now, right? It's uh, you know for the past year and uh, and three months we've uh, we've all been remote, um, yes. and that clearly changes workplace dynamics uh, when when you're not with the person. How do you expect this issue to resurface um, uh, as we return to in-person work? And many some people won't be returning to in-person work, and maybe this is a factor in their decisions regarding whether to work remotely or work work in person. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? So definitely COVID changed everything. And, you know, in terms of my research, you know, my initial project was that I was going to go out and look at the sexual harassment experiences of hotel housekeepers in New York City and talk to them about how they were doing their job, how they were harassed and the protections that were being put into place to help them. For example, in New York City, if you're in a unionized hotel, hotel housekeepers get a panic button. So if they're going into a room and there's primarily a, a, a man who's there by himself and he's sexual harasses the housekeeper, she can press the panic button and get help and attention. COVID changed that research plan, which often happens <laughs> with research. Um, 
But what I started to think about a little bit more broadly during COVID um, were two things. First of all, simply because you're in a remote environment, you're logging in, you're in a um, Zoom environment, or um, you're on a call, does not mean that sexual harassment goes away. In fact, it can take a variety of uh, forms. And I think we've seen some of these being covered in the media, where there are sexually harassing incidents that happen over Zoom, for example. And women are still subjected to that, subjected to language, subjected to images um, that they don't want to see and that they don't deserve to see. So um, I, I sort of want to push back against this fallacy that the that a remote environment is necessarily a safer environment. Mm. And the second point that I'd like to make is that for a lot of women workers, um, sort of the frontline women workers, as well as women working in the service industries, there have been a couple of articles that have said that sexual harassment actually got worse during the pandemic. And I'd like to give you an example of that. Um, so we know that as restaurants have uh, started to open up all across the United States, you know, we're all looking forward to this, you know, being back in the real world once again and, and so forth. But during the pandemic, wait staff, for example, working in New York City restaurants, um, they had to serve their customers. And uh, oftentimes the restaurants required that they wear masks in doing so. So there were a series of articles and uh, reports done about um, the wait staff, their experience in dealing with customers during this time. And they actually reported that sexual harassment got worse. Mm -hmm. So for example, when a, uh, a, wait, uh, a wait person who happened to be a woman would come up to a table with her mask and ask um, for the order, um, oftentimes um, men who were customers uh, at this particular restaurant would say, take off your mask so I can see how much to tip you. Um, and so women felt that um, they were stuck, right? They needed to have, and this is the position that women are often find themselves in, that they have to uh, play along because in the restaurant business, all of your, all of, most of your salary is based on tips. And right. if you turn off your male customer, uh, you are not going to get tipped. So we saw this type of behavior increase as well. Um, we also saw this happen. Um, some of my research looks a little bit at female Uber and Lyft drivers. And so male customers getting into these vehicles, asking to see the faces of their female drivers in order to determine their rating, um, which mm. is very important for an Uber driver in order to succeed, um, as well as how much I'm going to tip you uh, this also became very, very prominent um, as well. So COVID didn't necessarily make things better. Um, I think uh, it exposed a lot of the harassment um, that was already going on at, at the time. And as we transition back, perhaps to more in-person meetings, I think that we need to think about harassment as it occurs in, in its many different forms. That's fascinating um, and, of course, disturbing and unfortunate. Um, now, you talked about, you know, when you're talking about the hotel workers, you talked about how many of them have union uh, protections. Um, certainly, there are plenty of individuals without union protections, and these include independent contractors that I know you've been working on um, uh, more recently. Can you talk a little bit about the precarious situation that independent contractors find themselves in? 
Sure. So this was really uh, a, a strong um, motivation for me. Um, in the United States, we know that an ever-increasing number of workers in the United States are classified as independent contractors. That means that they don't have the traditional um, benefits as well as protections from discrimination and abuse that employees, for example, might have with respect to their employers. So for example, in a traditional employer-employee relationship, if you have a case of sexual harassment, you can bring it before the um, EOC if you want to. Typically organizations also have, workplace organizations have vehicles by which you can bring about uh, your charges or claims of sexual harassment to see that they're adjudicated in a, fairly, um, in a fair way. With respect to ind independent contractors, they don't have those possibilities. They don't have those opportunities or protections. And in my current work right now, um, as I, uh, I think about this more broadly, I'm focusing now on the fashion industry. And what's really interesting about the fashion industry is that we have sort of these preconceived ideas that the fashion industry is so glamorous, right? Models make millions of dollars, they get free clothes, they get um, they get to go to these fabulous places. Well, the truth of the matter is that the majority of models are under, um, well, under the age of 25, many of whom are actually underage or youth. Um, they don't make much money at all. Um, they make maybe $20,000, $30,000 a year. Um, and they are independent contractors. Their agencies represent them to clients, but they're not employed by their agencies. So in looking at the fashion industry, what I really was focusing on was how these models were sent out to jobs um, in order to get jobs, modeling jobs. And what I found out was that agencies often sent them to meet with mostly male photographers on their own, even if they were under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And what happened as a result, as you might imagine now, of course, there are many, many male photographers that behave in a professional way. But there were also many, many instances where these male photographers knew of their power to either make or break a model's career um, and would basically harass um, and abuse these models in their presence when they're working on a one-to-one -one basis. And these, these stories that I, I've studied are really heart-wrenching because again, we have a situation where many of them are under the age of 18. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They're afraid of being dropped by their agency if they're considered difficult. Um, to work with, which photographers will label them to be. And as a result, they experienced such harrowing um, incidents of sexual harassment um, that are very, very difficult to, to comprehend. And, and I'm writing about their stories now. Well, you know, I have to hit the policy angle here. Of course. <laughs> um, as we think about both those in workplaces and uh, and independent contractors, what do we need to do um, in terms of trying to make these situations better and make harassment less likely um, and protect those who are in vulnerable positions? So I think that for employees in traditional employer-employee relationships, we have a good legal mechanism in place um, at the federal level, um, as well as in state employment agencies um, where people can make reports of sex 
harassment. I think that as the Me Too movement has gained steam over the past um, couple of uh, couple of years as well, we know that organizations are trying to do a better job in terms of implementing procedures to help people um, make claims of sexual harassment and have those adjudicated as well. The real, the most vulnerable part, I think, of the workforce right now are these independent contractors. Um, and so the good news is that we have seen many states take their own initiative in passing laws to protect independent contractors against sexual harassment. It's very few. It's a handful. You know, um, California has done, done some things. Of course, New York um, has done some things. Um, where they're basically saying, if you fall into this category, these are the tools and methods that you can use to get your situation addressed. But I think in terms of public policy as a whole, we need to be thinking, be thinking about these workers. We need to be thinking about their vulnerability. And we need to be thinking about what we can do in terms of enhancing the legal infrastructure that is out there to help these individuals who do not have these traditional benefits as well as protections from abuse. So it's, you know, it's tempting to, you see all the attention given to this and this, and that's obviously a good thing and, and a, a sign of progress in moving forward. And then you see Donald Trump in the newspapers and you see Governor Cuomo in the newspapers. You know, you've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Are we moving forward? Are we making progress? Very, very good question. Uh, I think that we are becoming definitely more aware of the issue. I think that people are being held accountable to a, um, a greater degree than they have in the past. But we also see some men, and again, you know, uh, we want to uh, give everyone the opportunity, I think, to, to, to you know, present their case and defend themselves accordingly. But what I have seen more recently is that um, some um, alleged perpetrators of sexual harassment have been sort of sticking their uh, heels into the ground and basically saying, you know, let's, um, I deny this, or um, this is, this is, I'm sorry that this person felt that way about this interaction, but I'm going to keep on going in my job. And I'm not sure if that's going to be a successful strategy for alleged perpetrators over the long run. Um, I think I was, I personally was very surprised that Cuomo is uh, uh, sticking it out um, with respect to all of the allegations that came out. Um, I was less surprised about Donald Trump sticking it out in terms of the allegations that came out against him because, you know, these were sort of uh, baked in factors, but, you know, I, I, I think a lot of eyes are going to be watching what happens with Cuomo and his particular political future to see, you know, whether it makes sense, you know, for for people to say automatically alleged perpetrators to automatically say, you know, this was bad. And however, it was, you know, my responsibility is is um, uh, I, I have responsibility for creating this environment and I'm going to bow out um, versus sticking it through. Um, I think we need to look at his future and, and see what happens there. 
my hope is that when allegations are made of any kind, that they are taken seriously, that, the, that they are given um, the full opportunity to be aired, um, and that people do, get, do have an opportunity to defend themselves against these allegations, but that ultimately our primary focus is on the victims and restoring them um, into whole beings and restoring uh, um, their ability to be productive in their jobs and and to move forward in their careers. And, you know, I like to blame Trump for everything. And I think <laughs> Cuomo's, uh, Cuomo's decision to stick things out is directly related to the uh, to the success he saw at the federal level in doing so. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're right. It will be interesting to see how that plays out as he decides whether to run for reelection and how how his reelection prospects suffer. Um, Jocelyn, thank you so much for uh, for a great set of uh, of information, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on and we'll talk about some of these other uh, other issues that you've studied. Great, it was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, a big thank you as well to uh, Amy Cobb and Karen Olson who helped get this podcast out and on the air. Um, we will see you in two weeks with another talk from another expert at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.